what is it about music that just gives us that like nostalgic feeling of being able to remember exactly where we were, who we were with, right, what we were wearing. Like, what is it about music? Like, it's not even a visual thing, which humans are very visual, as, as I know you talk about. But there's something about music where we don't even have to see anything, but just the triggers in our, you yeah, know, just from our ears. There's a great book called Music and the Brain that is that goes that tries to explain some of that, and also David Byrne wrote a great book. I think he called it. I think the name of it is How Music Works,、um, and those books really do. Debbie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Obviously, you're someone that doesn't need a, a,、uh, a huge address. Most people have heard about your work and the things that you do. But for for the people that may not have heard about you or may have just heard about your your name but not your background, can you give us just a brief overview of your、um, uh, I guess your experience and what what you've done? Uh, well, I am a designer. I'm an author of six books, soon to be seven. I'm an educator. I run the world's first master's program in branding at the School of Visual Arts, which I've been doing now for twelve years. I am also the host of a long-running podcast called Design Matters, which is one of the first and longest-running podcasts in the world. Two thousand and five was it? Is、yeah. when you started. Yes. Yeah, before podcasts are like the cool thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and、um, I'm also a, a brand consultant and work with a lot of nonprofits and、uh, organizations that are trying to make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, and I'll kind of fill this in for for people that aren't aware. Of course, you were president of Sterling Brands for twenty、yes. years,、oh, where you've. Where you've done branding work for some of the top brands、uh, around the world: Burger King, Star Wars, Tropicana.、Um, anyways, I don't know how. Sometimes I don't feel comfortable when like you go through the accolades and stuff. So <laughs> I don't know how you feel about that, but <laughs> <laughs> it's weird.、Um, but I'm really excited、uh, to be doing the work that I am now, which、mm-hmm. sort of all blurs together. I do my podcast in front of my students when not in COVID. Uh, my book is about the podcast. My work is、uh, multifaceted in that it's、um, projects that I do with students or with colleagues. So it's it's an interesting way to be working now, and I like it very much. That's amazing, yeah. And、um, I'm always curious to hear about you know the backgrounds of what people were like when they were younger, and what kind of inspired them to become. You know, in your in your in your case, kind of this, this artist, and I don't I don't know what title you would want to to put it at, but I would just say kind of an artist.、Um, what did you want to be when you were growing up? I think that the first thing that I wanted to be was a teacher.、Um, I used to be obsessed with、um, attendance books, <laughs> and I created an entire class out of. Um, stuffed animals, Barbie dolls, and my brother, my little brother.、Um, 
So much so that he didn't need to go to kindergarten. He just went straight into first grade because he knew everything he needed to know from kindergarten. No way. So you were, how much older were you that you were able to teach him all this stuff? Uh, two and a half years. So, okay. <laughs> but I think that's the first thing that I wanted to be. Interesting. And it kind of ended up working out that way, right? You are at the yeah, end of the day, I mean, you're, definitely you're inspiring and teaching. Yeah. And I, and I love teaching. Um, mm. I wouldn't want to only be a teacher, but I do very much enjoy working with young people. And it sort of allows me to keep my pulse on the pace of culture with knowing what they're all doing. So what they're interested yeah. in, what they're compelled by and so forth. And at what point did you want it to kind of shift more into design and kind of the work that you're doing now? Was that in high school, university? Hmm. Well, I would say that it was definitely university, but it wasn't something that I was even really conscious of being a discipline, branding. Um, when I was in college, I worked on the student newspaper and at the time, I thought I might go into journalism in some way, working for a magazine, uh, which was something that I, I also loved doing when I was a little girl. Not, maybe not so little. When I was adolescent, I created a magazine with my best friend uh, in my Long Island neighborhood. And her name was also Debbie. And so we decided very, and we thought we were very clever um, in doing this. We decided to call the magazine Debutante. And we drew the whole thing. We drew all the pictures, all the photographs. We sort of drew ourselves as if they were fashion photographs. And we wrote articles and um, it was it was really fun. We we did. So I did that. But I, I again, I don't know that I was really conscious of what I wanted to do when I graduated at that point, because that seemed so far away. And then when I was in college, um, I started working on the student newspaper and part of the duties of the editors was to also put the paper together. And so that was my first foray into design because I had to design the paper and do all the layout and make all the stats. And it was very um, drafting table driven. And um, that was really when I fell in love with design, I realized that I liked design almost as much, if not more than the actual writing and editing. And did that process take a while? Because I think a lot of people just kind of end up stumbling into the specific fields that they're into. And they realize that, number one, they're really skilled at it, that maybe they see the industry or the work in a particular light that other people don't see, or you're just surrounded by the right people so you can kind of tap into the industry. Have you ever? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that I took a very circuitous route to finding what I was good at. My first 10 years after college, I, I've often called those um, experiments in rejection and failure. I really um, was stumbling along. Um, I wouldn't say that I'm a particularly good designer, but I'm a, I, I think I'm a particularly good art director or creative director. And so it, took a, it took a little bit of time to figure that out. <laughs> Is that a misconception? A lot of beginning... Uh, kind of people that are just starting out have that they think they'd need some sort of like the hard skill of being able to design or whether it's a graphic designer or animator to be able to be one of the best in that, in that field, which, which is what you are. Well, it's very hard to say because when I graduated, it was probably before you were even born. I graduated college in 1983. So I suspect you were born in the nineties. I'm born in 92. 
Yeah, there, there you have it. So yeah, you guessed it. Yeah. Um, so back then, I could do. I had a skill, and the skill was layout and paste up, and I was very good at the mechanics of layout and paste up. So I could work with an art director and he would say, you know, do that and do that and do that and do that. And then I could do it really well because I was quite good at the drafting table. So that was my only marketable skill at the time. I almost got a job at Condé Nast, but didn't make it to the final interview, didn't, didn't get approved at the final interview. Um, but in hindsight, although I was crushed at the time, the atmosphere was very much like the movie, The Devil Wears Prada, just in the people that I met in the in the 80s. And Uh-oh. I would have been crushed by that. You know, I, <laughs> I made Anne Hathaway in The Devil Wears Prada look like a fashion model at the beginning. Oh, my God. So God, I, would have been, I would have been destroyed. I would have been destroyed. And and my my ego at the time was so fragile that it could have permanently disabled my spirit. Do you ever think about like this alternative path? Should you have gone this path where you would have landed? Or do you feel in your heart that in the end, you would have found your way back to where you are today? I don't know. I think about it all the time. Um, I'll, I'll quote Seth Godin here by saying that when people ask him, what would he tell his 30 year old self? He would say nothing, you know, because he, he's so happy with where he is at the moment. Yeah. That he didn't want anything to change. Um, would I, would I ever want to go through those years again in the same way? No. Would I want to go through those years again and end up here? Yes. But I don't know that that's possible. And so it's not even really something to spend a lot of time on. I know. I was just going to say like, it's one of those like interesting things to think about, but I don't know how useful it is because, yeah. you know, unless you believe in the butterfly effect and exactly. stuff like that, exactly. but yeah. But, but I wouldn't, I wasn't a particularly happy person at that point. And I was flailing in a lot of different ways, not just professionally. And, and so those, I would say those first 15 years out of college were really hard for me. Mm, okay. And is that, that start even during college as well? Like, did you have a- no, no, I mean, my, 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 my hard years, my darkest years were when I was um, a kid because I had a very turbulent upbringing, a lot of uh, physical, emotional, and sexual abuse from the time I was nine or 10, but even a lot of emotional abuse before that, then sort of, segueing into uh, sexual abuse and then trying to make my way out of that for the next 20 or so years. Um, But also still having a really, I think, strong and resilient spirit that hoped for so much. Mm -hmm. And I, I often say that I had at the time and still do to a lot, to a large degree, um, but more so then because it was so precarious Um, one notch more hope than shame about who I was in my life. And so that sort of always propelled me forward. Um, But my college years really helped me begin to understand how much more there was in the world. And 
by the time I graduated my senior year of college, I was the editor of the student, the editor of the arts and feature section of the student newspaper, which all that that's all that counted to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I was editor of the student magazine. You know, I found my voice and mm. suddenly I had sort of reached the pinnacle of places in my college experience. And, and that was really joyous for me and, and miraculous. And were some of those accomplishments what helped you define your purpose a little bit and your meaning of that based on, despite what happened in your early childhood, that that wasn't going to define you, but it was these skill sets that you're developing, the eventual path that you were headed towards based on, you know, these accomplishments that you've had in, in college. Was that kind of your mindset back then? That was the glimmer of hope that you had? That was a notch yeah, right then? it was. It was. It just took a long time to fulfill the hopes and dreams that I had of being successful at something. It took a long time to manifest that. Got it. Got it. And what were the difficulties of post-college that was so difficult? Was that Was that some of that just kind of coming back and just kind of needing to hustle and, and make it into the world. We know how difficult New York City is. And yeah, and I came to New York City world. right after graduation. I'm a native New Yorker. I was born in New York City, but I only lived in the boroughs of New York City until sixth grade and then sixth through 12th lived in uh, Long lived on Long Island. And then my four years of college, I lived in Albany in 1983. I graduated and moved to Manhattan and have been here ever since. Mm-hmm. But you know, I didn't know what I was doing. I had very little guidance. I didn't have parents that were particularly supportive of what I was doing. They were really engaged and involved in their own lives. Mm. And I didn't have any money. I didn't have any connections to speak of. And I hadn't done any internships in college because I didn't even know that that was something you could do. So it was really hard. You know, I found my jobs by looking in the New York Times classified ads and wow. um, sort of moved up through the ranks in, in many ways that way. Got it. Got it. So in, in some ways, like you had this chip on your shoulder that. No, I never had a chip no. on my shoulder. No, you didn't. No, no, I've never had a chip on my shoulder. I just would um, get depressed, but, <laughs> but I never, I never walked around thinking poor me or why can't I get these things? Or there was never a sense of entitlement ever, yeah. because it, in fact, it was the opposite. I would say that um, I was just hoping for an opportunity to prove myself, to prove to myself that I wasn't useless or worthless. Cause that's how I felt. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when I, th- when I, when I think about you and the work that you've done, I mean, resilience is one of the, one of the many things, of course, but it's one of the key things that comes to mind. of just constantly being able to persevere um, so obviously rejection is just part of your story. And, and I imagine it's still part of that story even today, right? It just in, in small ways and, in, in, you know, whether small and large, you know, small and large, all the same. You know, I'm, I'm a person that tends to be always hoping for more and trying for more and doing more. And if you move out of your lane, you're bound to get rejected because yep. you're moving out of your lanes. So, yep. yeah. And it might never seem like there's none because you only see a lot of the successes, which is why I try to talk about the failures and the rejections 
course. Because they're just such a big part of, at least for me, everything that I've done, everything that I've done. You know, I'm not one of those people that, you know, hits a grand slam home run. I'm the person that goes base by base, base by base, and then, you know, walks it home. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is why you're so relatable to a lot of people, just given how much you've, you've reached, you're still dealing with it. And it never feels like it's as, you know, unless you actually directly visualize the pain, the pain and the rejection that you've had before that one rejection after another, it still feels the same, right? It still feels just as painful. It's kind of like if you were to sprain your ankle like four years ago, but then today you stub your toe to you at this moment, it feels so painful and yes. it's not, you know, there's no tolerance of it. So yeah. um, it, takes, you- it takes training to not allow myself to globalize, you know, so I'll get a rejection. And then suddenly it's like, I'm doomed. I'm worthless. I'm never going to do anything important again. I'm never going to do anything meaningful. Nobody cares, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, that woe is me moment is still very much um, there. (laughs) I just tend not to publicize that. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you found different ways to deal with it just over the over the years of going through these different experiences. I'm curious to know for you, just coming up in your career, can you visualize or remember a big moment where maybe it was a rejection moment? And based on what you know today, what you would have told your 25-year-old self or 30-year-old self or, or 35-year-old self, maybe the yourself yesterday, I don't know. <laughs> But like what you would have, based on what you've learned now, what you, uh, what you would have advised the younger Debbie to deal well, with the rejection? Yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I'm going to, I'm going to stay firmly in the Seth Godin camp, which is, you know, I wouldn't have re- recommended that I change too many things because then I wouldn't be here, but, you know, maybe moisturize more. Definitely don't go out with that guy in the, that you met in the pool hall. And then, <laughs> <you know. laughs> um, I would have probably, if I had to give myself some advice, um, try not to worry as much. Sure, sure. Yeah, and try advice. not to think that, try not, and this is something I just tell my students all the time, which is, Try not to edit what you think is possible for your life before you experiment with the possibility. Mm. You know, a lot of students that I I teach now by senior year of college are already censoring. They, oh, I don't think I can do that. I'm not this enough. I'm not that enough. And I did that too. So I really can relate. But the only person that was telling me that I couldn't do it was me. And I was so terrified of failure that I didn't even try for the things that I really wanted, especially because I was getting rejected and failing at the things that I didn't even really want. So I would say, you know, anybody that is trying for something, there's always going to be the option or the possibility that you're going to be rejected, at least try for the things that matter the most to you. You know, we can metabolize most feelings. We can metabolize grief. We can metabolize love. We can metabolize happiness and achievement. One thing that we really can't metabolize because there's no closure is regret. Mm. And so better to try to do something. And if you don't succeed, 
you'll metabolize that grief and move on to something else. Dan Gilbert calls that synthesizing happiness. But if you don't try it at all, you're never going to metabolize it and you can't synthesize something new. So you get stuck in that paralysis. Yeah. This really strikes me uh, as a point, and I've read an article, I think it was by Tim Urban. He writes the popular blog, uh, Wait But Why. And I think he was talking about like the importance of thinking big based on how most people are taught to censor, as you mentioned, which is there's often less competition at the top just because everyone is vying for this bottom position. And this applies to careers where maybe someone is trying to get a nine to five job and there's so much different competition because not a lot of people are able to think big enough to be in certain fields like that, which is like, let's take the case of Elon Musk. Like there's not a lot of competition for people that are trying to build spaceships because no one is, is really trained to think that big. And same goes for like the, the, the cute girl or the cute guy that you see at a coffee shop. Like oftentimes the, the most beautiful people, they're not approached a lot. So it's actually, I wouldn't in some know. sense. John, I wouldn't know. Oh, come on. You are the person, right? <laughs> I wouldn't know. <laughs> All right. Humbleness. Okay. Um, hey, Debbie, I want to shift gears a little bit and, and talk to you a little bit about creativity since this is such a core part of your, uh, the book itself and, and the podcast and the people that you've interviewed. How do you personally define what it means to be creative or a creative person? To make something from nothing. To make something from nothing. Okay. And that really branches out to any particular field, right? It's not yes, necessarily it's drawing making, or... It's about making things. It could be mm. a podcast. It could be an illustration. It could be a lesson plan. It could be a meal. It could be a living room. You know, anything that you're putting together with your own ideas is, is creative. Mm. Yeah. And I think I know the answer to this, but, you know, I personally believe that anyone has the the capability of being able to develop any skill and, and become one of the top class at it. Is that the same for creativity? Is creativity something that can be taught of, let's say someone that grew up their entire lives, not inspired to be creative, not taught to be creative and just came out to the world and was able to be taught to be, you know, a top creative. I don't know. I, I certainly think that skills can be refined and honed. I think some people, I think everybody is born with the possibility of being creative. How that is developed and nurtured and guided and encouraged is very much about surroundings and I think anybody has the ability to be creative. I think everyone has the ability to be creative. If you have an imagination, you have the ability to be creative because you can imagine another state and going from one state to another is very much creative endeavor. But I think a lot of people are inhibited by worry and judgment and they don't pursue being creative because they don't want people to laugh at them or think something is not good. You know, it's so subjective. It's also subjective. The very things that some people love and 
are thrilled by are the very things that outrage others. So I think that there's quite a lot at stake when you're being creative in many ways. Mm-hmm. And, and that can be terrifying for someone. Um, so I do think we all have the capacity and I do think that we owe it to ourselves to explore that capacity and worry less about what other people think and more about how our own heart beats. That's hard to do and easy, easy to say, but really, really hard to do. Do you feel that in some sense that as an artist, there is a level of importance and almost like keeping your knife sharp by being able to be aware of, you know, knowing how people think and essentially in this sense, caring what other people think. Like I I remember watching this um, Netflix documentary of Beyonce. I think she was launching the Lemonade music album and she was in a room of all these music executives and apparently she looked a little nervous. So someone asked her like, you know, walking out of the meeting was why was she, why was she so nervous given how top of the field she is and how hard she was worked at it. And she said, at the end of the day, I'm still an artist. And as an artist, it's just natural to care what other people think in some sense. And maybe it's what makes their art really top notch because they have some level of that, Security, like stand-up comedians are a good example. Like a lot of stand-up comedians tend to be in some sense, like very insecure, but it's what makes them so funny because they're just so on top of it. Yeah, well, it's, um, it's universal pain that they're trying to make fun of in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. Is, is it, in that sense, is it kind of important to nurture that and, and kind of have that level of awareness in that sense? Or do you feel like based on the people that you've interviewed that it's not, it's not as relevant? I think it's completely relevant. Um, I think that we're touched by other relatable human experiences. You know, when somebody listens to a song they love, they're not really thinking about what the songwriter was feeling to, to their ex, you know, if that's what it's about. They're thinking about how they personally feel about their ex. Right. You know, nobody's thinking about, you know, thinking of, what, let's think of a good example here. Um, a great Joni Mitchell song, you know, about one of her exes. Nobody's thinking, oh, that's how she was feeling about uh, was it Graham Nash or James Taylor? No, that's not why you love the song. You love the song because she's singing about how you feel about uh, your ex. You're thinking about, yes. Yeah. Interesting. So I think that the more revealing you can be with your own experiences, the more likely other people are going to relate to them. Mm. And that says a lot about human nature, how at the end of the day, there's things that we feel, whether what color, whether we're what cultures, we're all feeling the same thing. And I think that advice really just goes to show that's true. Yeah. I mean, think about the difference between listening to an incredible piece of music that you can completely relate to and how we might, we might listen to it over and over and over and over again. And that feeling 
really never changes. We still love that song so much and relate to it so much. You know, it might be our wedding song or it might be a a song that we use to um, create a soundtrack of a slideshow or whatever. But think about that in, in relation to looking at Instagram. You know, nobody's ever gone to Instagram and after 30 minutes felt like they saw something that was going to define a moment in their lives forever. You know, nobody comes away from Instagram feeling really good about themselves and life and humanity. It's always really fraught with so many other emotions. Yeah. What is it about music that just gives us that like nostalgic feeling of being able to remember exactly where we were, who we were with, right, what we were wearing. Like, what is it about music? Like, it's not even a visual thing, which humans are very visual as, as I know you talk about, but there's something about music where we don't even have to see anything, but just the triggers in our, you yeah. know, just from our ears. There's a great book called Music and the Brain that is, that goes, that tries to explain some of that. And also David Byrne wrote a great book. I think he called it, I think the name of it is How Music Works. Um, and those books really do. I, I'm not even going to try to explain it, but they okay. do articulate it in a really interesting way. Interesting. Yeah. I'll definitely check that out. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, well, for you personally, Debbie, I mean, are there daily habits and processes that you've developed over time that's maybe a non-negotiable for you that helps you really sharpen your creativity and brings out the best in you? Is there anything that you've done just, just that's kind of work that maybe people can learn from? No. <laughs> I don't have any processes. It's a first. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't. I don't like get up and write 10 pages. I don't journal every day. I don't have, I don't know. People are always asking me about process and I'm like, if, uh, there's no, I don't have any process. I mean, the only, the only methodology I might have is, is the way in which I go about researching for my podcast design matters. But other than that, I have no rituals. I have no order in which I like to do things. I don't eat the same thing for breakfast every day. I don't get up at the same time every day. I don't get up early. I I mean, I don't do any of those things that people recommend. So yeah, it's all sort of seat of my pants, do it when it's due. Um, Yeah. Do do you feel like in some sense that is that a a common pattern for a lot of different creatives that you know of, or does I don't know everyone... everybody, so many people do seem to have a process or yeah. inspiration, you know, this is where they'll go. And I don't have that either. I mean, for me, inspiration will come when I'm walking, when I'm doing something sort of outside myself. And sometimes when I'm watching law and order SVU on reruns, but I don't, I don't really have any secrets to my tricks of the trade. Got it. Interesting. Yeah, no worries. It's kind of like the, um, there's like the chicken and egg where someone talks about the, the general conception of creative people is that they have a very messy desk and the idea is like, is it, is it the chicken or the egg? Like did the messy desk inspire the creative person to become more creative and that's just kind of what they thrive off of, or did you know? Did that? Did the the mess? Did the creative person make the mess? It's kind of one of those things where 
it can be uh, one or the other, right? Because it kind of bring, it can bring up the chaos can kind of bring out the ideas and the creativity that allows you to think outside of the box of not being so structured. Yeah. I mean, I think that there are some remarkable people that have ways of looking at a problem and then broadening it and turning it and considering the abstraction of it. And that's not the way I work. Mm. Mm. I just sit down and have to start. Interesting. And you just kind of trust in yourself that you've done it before and it's going to work out. Yeah. A lot of it is, I think the, you know, I talk about how I believe that confidence is built by the successful repetition of any endeavor And so I'll look back at some of the more successful ways I've approached doing certain things, and then I'll approach them in the same way. And and the best example I can give is the podcast. Mm. You know, I'll I'll approach my research in pretty much the same way every time. And, but there's no real secret to that. It's just a matter of trying to create the biggest possible horizon for me to be aware of regarding that person's work and life and, um, and output. Got it. Got it. So you kind of let the work help you build the confidence and the confidence helps you come up with new ideas and gives you the faith to do that. Yes. Okay. Um, I I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but I think I've heard this from, from Chase Jarvis, which I know you've, you've taught at creative live where his idea of, creativity and inspiration is not necessarily to go into your industry and take other ideas from other people that are doing exactly what you're doing, but refer to maybe analogous or different industries completely and try to see if you can bring something from that that has worked that you can bring into your own industry. Is that some sort of, uh, is that a framework that you've used as well? And are there any other kind of frameworks that has helped you come up with new ideas and inspiration? Um, Well, I do believe that everything I do cross-pollinates. You know, there's a sort of combinatorial creativity that I impose on everything that I do. And so the writing will inform the teaching, will inform the podcast, will inform the brand strategy, will inform illustration work. It's all I I very much bring all of those ways of thinking to anything I do. And, and for me, it's sort of like just transitioning highway lanes. It's all on the same journey, but you know, whether, whatever highway lane I'm, I'm on at that moment is the one that I'll pay attention to. Um, So I think it's more organic though. I don't think that I'll think about, when I'm writing something, well, what would I bring to this if I were illustrating it? You know, I don't, I don't do that. It's probably something to consider doing, but it's not something that I currently do. I would form ideas around things based on more daydreaming and experimenting in that particular genre than necessarily bringing in something from somewhere else. Mm, Yeah. That is another commonality I found is where the people that are often so busy where they've got every 15 minutes scheduled with the meeting and other things that they have to do, there's just not enough time to daydream and to think of new ideas. 
because oftentimes when we're playing and we're doing something else, that's kind of when the best ideas come. Uh, I know you talk a lot about like times and prioritizing things that really matter for you. Um, how do you personally view time and, and how do you prioritize what's the most important things in your life today? Well, one of the most important things to me is sleeping. <laughs> I, I really do need a lot of sleep. I'm an eight plus person a night. And if I get less, I'm being kind of, kind of ornery. Um, so that's a big priority, big priority is spending time with my wife. And that's very different from my previous relationships where I always, I think I always put work first and, and now that is a very different sort of equation. Um, we both love to work and we're both very involved and engaged and committed to what we do, but we often parallel work. So we are still together while that's happening, which is fun. What do you uh, think changed there? Like, why, why do you think your previous relationships, you prioritized work first, but at this point, um, it hasn't? Maybe the understanding that you really do have to make your partner a priority if you want that relationship to last. And also because she's so much fun, I just want to be with her all the time. Mm, got it. Got it. Interesting. Okay. And that this just comes down from what's that? What about you? How do you I still struggle with it? With, do you have a partner that you are um, constantly sort of trying to figure out when you're going to work and when you're going to do things? I have a different problem, Debbie, <laughs> which is um, I, I tend to, you know, like, a, I guess a, a digital nomadic life, which is where you kind of enter into a city for three or four months and then you end up leaving. And that's a whole different problem in that sense where, uh, yeah, you just have to meet people and knowing that you might not end up staying. And it's, it's, um, it's been difficult to have a longer lasting relationship in that sense. I don't know if you believe in like long distance relationships either. And I personally, they're hard. They're hard. really hard. Right. So yeah, it is difficult. And, and I think I'm still, I don't know if it ever ends. Like, I don't know if I think like admit this point in my life at the span where I want to focus on being the best at what I do. And I'm curious to know, like at this point in your life, does that ever change? Does that ever go away where you finally decide to say, you know what, like I've reached a certain level in my career and now I can focus on family and relationships and. No, I, I think I still very much want it all. Hmm. So in that sense, is there ever a right time to seek and prioritize finding the right partner and making time for that person, knowing that there's never going to be an end where you prioritize? Work? Well, no, I, I prioritize my relationship now in a different way than I'm used to um, in terms of time and partnership, but it doesn't almost, it almost doesn't feel like a choice, Sean, because it's now so embedded in my, my day-to-day life. You know, we kind of do so much together 
that, and I don't mean projects and work stuff. I just mean life that it's just, it's just now point of entry. You know, everything has been rearranged in a way where Roxanne is the centerpiece of my life, but my work is still very much part of who I am and my identity and my passion. You know, that's Mm -hmm. a huge passion for me. I love what I do. So in a lot of ways, it's not even really work because it's not laborious. It's just my life. So it's all, right. it's all integrated now, but I definitely make the time to be with, or I don't find the time, I make the time to be with her. Yeah, that's one of my favorite quotes from you, which is like, everyone is busy. Everyone has a lot of different things going on, but we all have 24 hours in the day. And at the end of the day, it's, it's what are you willing to sacrifice to to make the time to be able to get what you want. And um, yeah, it seems like you've kind of found your flow of being able to do that. And maybe it's not the right partner, right? If it feels like you have to sacrifice this and to be with that person, maybe that's not the right person. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? I think that's correct. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's tough. Relationships are tough these days. Um, they were, they've always been for me an Achilles heel. It was always the hardest thing for me. It's only gotten easier since I met Roxanne. Hmm. Hardest things, meaning like you always had to prioritize work. So you just didn't find the time or you, you didn't find the right person. Probably both. Probably both. Okay. And also not really having the skills, the interpersonal skills, like learning how to be in a relationship that's not codependent, Um, learning to feel secure within yourself, getting over abandonment issues that you bring to a relationship. All of those things have profoundly changed the sort of tenor of my relationships. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're, you're probably familiar with like the the attachment theory of how you are with different partners and stuff. And I'm particularly uh, and a, a struggling avoidant trying to make my way into more of the secure land where um, I don't know what it is about the dynamics of the relationship, but yeah, it just, I tend to be astrayed when someone is looking for like all of that attention, which is a little bit difficult here in Latin America. Cause that's just kind of how the culture of the relationship is. Right. Yeah. Um, What's been like the involvement for, for you in terms of being able to manage that and, and kind of what, what are some of the work that you've done personally to, uh, as you mentioned, get into a little bit more of the secure side of yourself? Therapy. A lot of therapy. Therapy. Yeah. That's the answer. Safe proponent. Saved my life. Wow. Made everything in my life possible. I really, mm-hmm. really recommend it. Interesting. Okay. That's, so that was the main thing. Cool. Um, commitment to doing it. You know, it's yeah. an investment you're making in yourself. And so taking it really seriously. Yeah. Were you a little bit doubtful at first no, initially? Never been doubtful about therapy, ironically, okay. or surprisingly. I'm not sure what the right word to use would be. Got it. Got it. Um, 
I, I guess kind of in, in relation to, to time and this idea of like unbusying ourselves to, to make time for work or creativity, finding ideas, your partners. Um, one of the biggest involvements today in the last maybe two or three decades is, you know, uh, I don't know if you know, like Naval Ravikant. No, no. Uh, he, he, he talks, he's like a big angel investor in, in the, in the Silicon Valley space, not really relevant, but he talks about this old idea of leverage where capital and people were how people found leverage back in the day. And today there's a new leverage, which is media and software and code where there's just a lot of automations and things that are happening where people just don't have to work the same amount of effort because there's so many tools that are available. Do you feel that at this time, working smart is more important than just simply working hard? I think both are required. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think a person's work ethic is extremely, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? It, it really does correlate to their success. I think work ethic is probably second to talent in terms of achieving mastery. Yeah. So I would say that it both are required equally. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember talking with a student that was failing and we were talking with the provost because they were in really serious, um, Straits about with their with their coursework and their ability to really understand the work, and and this gentleman was talking to the provost and saying, "But I I've tried so hard, I've worked so hard," and I remember him saying, "It doesn't matter if you're working hard if you don't understand what you're doing," and and that was so profound to me. Because, you know, we can sort of busy ourselves, but if we don't fully comprehend what we're working toward, then, you know, we're, what are we doing? Yeah, that's a great insight. Um, one of the things that uh, obviously as you get more successful is needing to turn down and pick the right opportunities or the, and really be able to protect your time particularly with, you know, you're, you're, now that you have a partner and you've got other things that are happening in your life that are really your purpose, how do you say no to opportunities? <laughs> um, usually I, I'll say, you know, I'm sorry, but for now I'll have to pass. I use that word pass. For now. For, for you now. say for now and then now pass. pass. And does that also relate to opportunities where you know that even later on, you might not be interested and those people end up coming back. So there does end up being a little more work or do most people just take the hint and they say, okay, like- Some people take the hint. Most okay. Take the hint. And, and then, you know, it's, it might be for a specific thing and then, you know, they might write again at some point and say, well, I have this thing. 
or this opportunity. And I try to be really nice to everybody because so many people when I was starting out and when I was inviting to be on Design Matters or asking for interviews, they were kind and generous to me. Um, you know, it's and it's rare that I regret that. I've, I've only regretted it once or twice, once recently where after the interview and, and it was one of these situations where they wanted to have a tech check the day before and then we did the interview and then I got a, a photo of a release, a permissions release after and they wanted me to sign away my rights even and included something like political campaigns. And I'm like, I can't sign away my what? rights for anything I say to potentially be used in somebody's political campaign. I had never seen that before. And so then after a tech check and the interview, I said, no, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't sign this. And he's like, well, fine, I won't run the interview then. It was like, wow, I just wasted two hours of my life. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was really bummed. But that's really the only terrible experience that I wish I'd said no to. And that was a recent one, too. Yeah, it's, like, last it's like fresh in your memory. I yeah. promise that's not something we're not going to give you any waivers or anything like that. Yeah, <laughs> and it wasn't even a waiver that I got at the beginning. So I could have read it and said, sorry, I can't sign this. But it was after. I'm like, I'm not going to sign away my political rights. <laughs> that's insane. I've never seen that before. Was the interview even about politics or did you mention something about it? And not even probably, yeah. Yeah, no, there was a whole slew of things that it could be used for, all of which were inappropriate and and crazy. But this particular one was the one that I sort of honed in on as I, you know, the others maybe, but definitely not that. My God. Yeah. Yeah. We're living in a crazy time these days. Where well, it's just- it is very litigious time. So we, I guess we have to be thinking about those things, but. Um, at least now I read things like that. I didn't used to. I signed yeah. just because I thought it was a nice thing to do and didn't feel like bothering, but now I do. Sure. Yeah. And we're always trying to look for validation of like what other people are thinking to make certain decisions, if special for on the fence. Um, kind of go back to the, the the point of this, I guess, career advice for some people or just advice in general where we're living in a a society where we're constantly comparing ourselves to others and our peers and people that are more successful than us. Um, The hardest part seems to be when, for me at least, is is when there's someone that started at the same time as you, where maybe it's even in the same industry. You guys started at the exact same time, or maybe it's someone even below. And within a shorter amount of time, they were able to surpass the success that you've had and maybe it comes from like survival instincts. Like I think in some sense, like humans were always living in social groups and we kind of looked over our shoulders to see if we were doing the right thing for survival purposes. Um, So I I know it's like, it's not something we can suppress, but what have you found to uh, maybe advice for other people to be able to minimize that or to maybe leverage it for, for good? Well, I think it's really dangerous to assume that you know about someone's inner life. And just because they've achieved this tangible, physical thing, you, you don't know what is behind that and what it took. And 
anytime that I've found myself comparing myself to somebody else, the more I learned about that person, the more angry I was for assuming that that's all they were. Mm. And I remember once I was preparing for an interview uh, with Sue Matthews Hale, who is uh, a great designer. She used to be a partner at Siegel Gale. She was the president of AIGA for many years. And I, inter- I was interviewing her for Design Matters. And I really like to be able to talk to my guests about the obstacles that they faced. Mm. And I'm sorry, she wasn't at Siegelville. She was at Lippincott. And she had gotten an internship right out of school. I think her first job was at Pentagram. I mean, she, she seemed to have this charmed life. And I remember doing my research and like, I hadn't found one thing about her that I could talk to about struggle or overcoming an obstacle or failure or rejection. Like it just seemed, plus she's gorgeous, like stunningly beautiful woman. And it just seemed like it was one success after another, after another, after another. And the only thing I couldn't find on her that I, besides, besides that, um, about her history was where she was born. I knew she was raised in the Midwest, but I didn't know where she was born. And I never write my guests ahead of time unless it's an absolute emergency with a question about their history. But in this particular case, I just felt like I had to. And I wrote her and I said, Sue, you know, I can't, I can't find any, anything written about where you were born. It always says you were raised in, but it never says born and raised in. So she wrote me back and she said, well, I don't talk about it much, but um, I was abandoned by my parents when I was two years old and I was found on the streets in China, put into an orphanage. And I'm like, well, so much for a charmed life. And I, you know, that, that hubris and narcissism is something that I am very conscious of when I think that I know so much about someone just by what appears to be so than what I just might not know. And so I've, I've really all but given up comparing myself to others. Although, to be completely honest and transparent, it still bothers me that Michelle Obama is younger than me. <laughs> Just saying. I'm sure it bothers a lot of people. I'm sure you're not Just alone. <laughs> wow, that's fascinating. So that must just thrown off the entire interview. Just it was well, the day before you found that me. out. No, no, no. I, I included it in the show. I, I started the show by talking about it and how I think it's so, it was such an important example for me to, and I said, you know, I was looking at her life like, oh my God, this is like a perfect life. She's gorgeous. She's thin. She's seems to be really successful at everything. She's a partner. She was at Pentagram, she was awards, president, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, I hear this and, and it was, it was humbling. And how do you, as a host, this is just from my own personal question, bring out the vulnerabilities in people where you're not sure if they're comfortable talking about it or not. And 
you know, I, I try to lead with my own vulnerability in some sense. And it was particularly easy with someone like yourself, but do you have kind of a, a way that you found that can make people more comfortable talking about the vulnerabilities and the, and the struggles they've been through? Because I think anyone can really apply this in their everyday conversations, not just if they have a podcast. Well, I'm not a gotcha kind of interviewer. Um, no, I don't think so. Yeah. One thing that if you listen to the show, you probably realize that I almost always open every show with some surprising little quirky thing I found about them in my research. Mm. And, and I do that for a couple of reasons. One, it gets them to laugh. And, and I love to start a podcast with somebody being happy. And second, I think it also allows them to understand just how much research I've done. And so they know that I'm coming to the interview with an enormous amount of respect for who they are and what they've done in the world. And so I think that that opening is a, a soft way to provide some sense of security around what we're going to do together in the hour that we talk. Right. Because people can at least sense your intention, which is... But it doesn't always, it's not always the case. You know, there are some people that warm up to me over the course of the time we're talking. Um, some people like Richard Solwerman got really annoyed with me over the course of the episode. That was one of the hardest episodes I've ever done. It got more and more and more annoyed with me. Um, so it really depends. Well, I love that you even just talked about that. So that's, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's I think everyone has. Yeah, that's one of my most uh, responded to uh, podcasts because at one point he was just like, that's a dumb question. And people were oh like, my oh God. my God. <laughs> wow. It's funny because he was really, really unhappy during the interview. And then after it was, and my producer didn't even want me to publish it, but I really wanted to anyway. And after it was posted, um, he wrote, Richard wrote, wrote to me and said, I didn't think so at the time, but I do think our interview was quite good. <laughs> <laughs> was that after all the responses from people that, that, that they well, put he out? Well, know what kind of responses I was getting. So I don't know that, that unless he was getting some too, like, how Maybe. could you speak to that woman that way? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you've interviewed so many fascinating people, not just for the book, but of course for the, for, for the podcast, but, uh, are there any key lessons that you've learned from these guests that can maybe some of these all have in common uh, that you've found to be surprising or maybe that people just may not typically guess that these, these would bring them together? Well, I think just the notion that very few people I've ever interviewed are just content with what they've made. They always want to be making more things. And so there isn't that resting of the laurels, so to speak. There isn't that perch on a, on a throne where they're feeling like they can just sort of command this or command that. Um, the only two people that I've interviewed that ever really felt satisfied and, and, and definitely not in a kind of powerful Wizard of Oz kind of way, um, but just just accepting of, of their greatness um, were Massimo Vignelli and Milton Glaser. And I interviewed them both when they were in their 80s. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, by then, maybe 
they felt like they had no more fucks to give, you know, they had <laughs> sort of done it all, but I love that. Still, you know, Milton worked till up until a month before he died at 91. Wow. So Seymour Quast is 90, still doing some of the best work of his life. So I think that for those people that make it when they're 25, you know, look at somebody like Seymour Quast, who's 90, look at somebody who like Paula Cher, who's I think approaching her seventh decade and think, you know, they're still making great, great work. You know, you don't want to do all the great work when you're 25. You want to pace yourself so that you still have a lot of runway over the course of your life. You know, when I interviewed David Lee Roth, he said something really profound to me. He's the lead singer of Van Halen or was the lead singer of Van Halen. And in 1984, again, long before you were born, they were the most popular band on the planet. They, they could do no wrong. They had the epitome of every rock and roll fantasy that you could, that you could think of. And when I interviewed him two years ago, I said, how did that feel? How did it feel in that moment back in 1984 to be like the most popular dude on the planet? Yeah. And he said, you have to be really careful when you reach the, the top of the tallest mountain because they're, it's very cold. You're usually alone. And there's only one direction. Hmm. And I thought, you know, I don't want to peak until the day before I die. And so great. I still hope that there's more greatness in front of me because I don't want to think I've done my best work at, you know, 50, 50, 55, 59, whatever. I want to be able to, keep making things, you know, getting back to the beginning of the interview and your early question. I just want to be able to make things I'm proud of for the rest of my life. Mm. Yeah. Well, speaking of patience and Milton Glaser, um, I know he was the inspiration for you around the 10-year plan for Remarkable Life. That is one thing that uh, is so practical, has made such a big influence in my personal life. And I know it's already made a lot of people uh, inspired to do and think more patiently. Can we just go into that a little bit? What is the tenure plan for Remarkable Life? And maybe you can even give the context of, you know, what you were taught through Milton around what the frameworks are around this. Sure. Um, I took a class with Milton Glaser in 2005. He did a summer intensive at the School of Visual Arts. This was before I was teaching there. And it was amazing. It was one of the best things I've ever done in my life. And the last exercise over the intensive was to envision your life 10 years into the, no, I'm sorry, five years into the future, five years into the future. So I made a plan for 2010 and he said it was a very magical little exercise and to treat it accordingly, take it as seriously as, as possible because it seemed to have these magical qualities to them. And so I did, I took it very seriously. I wrote a huge long essay. I made a list of things that I also wanted to do, envisioned everything, what my life was gonna look like, where I lived, what I was working on doing, who I was with, pets, projects, everything. And um, we shared it with the class, which was an important component, the sort of declaration of it. And um, then I put the notebook away and Time marched on and by 2010, and they were big, audacious goals. They were not like little tiny iterations. Yeah. Um, 80% of them had come true. Wow. 
what were yeah. like some of them, if, if you don't mind sharing? Well, one was teaching and I not only started um, teaching undergrad the next year, but by 2009, so four years into the plan, Steve Heller had um, asked me if I'd be interested in, in co-founding uh, the world's first master's in branding program, um, writing a book. Writing so writing a book of interviews, writing a book of illustrated essays, and I hadn't I hadn't worked on illustrated essays at that point for thirteen years, so I'd stopped doing that kind of work. Um, so many other things, just oh, working, being part of uh, AIGA, being a national board member for AIGA, and by two thousand and nine, again four years later, I was president of. National AIJ, not just a board member, but president. All in five years, right? I would say about 80%. And then I would say it took another, it took 15 years to manifest all of it. Every single one. And so in 2017, I think it was 2017 or yeah, 2017 or 20, yeah, 2017. I, on New Year's Eve, 2017. So December 31st, 2017, I wrote another one and already a few of things have come true. Wow. And Atlas was doing a TED talk. And then I did a TED talk in 2019. Which I saw. It's amazing. So the idea is that you're, you're writing things down and can it be like a vision board that you can add visual things or is it specifically uh, meant it to It's really writing? an essay, but speaking of which I'm working on something with Chronicle, like a little card set to help people envision their own 10 year plan for a remarkable life. And I changed it to 10 years. Milton did five because so many his class was for mid career professionals. So at the time Mm. I was in class 2005. So I was 44. I wanted to create a longer timeline because I was mostly working with younger people. And so they were just graduating and, so I wanted to give them a longer runway. So I changed it to 10 years. Sure. Yeah. And it just adds the patience mm-hmm. and how important of that, that virtue is, right? For yeah. someone that's being able to do something. Um, I think what's also important is I think you're forcing people to think bigger because what you can accomplish in 10 years is often a lot more than, mm-hmm. you know, just the, the things that you can accumulate over time and exponentially grow. Um I don't know what your takeaway was from the five-year thing, but I did something similar to that. It was called the perfect day. And you get into very much like the specifics of what your perfect day would feel like from the moment you wake up to what you're doing. That's that's what this is. That's exactly the same thing. That's right. And I didn't have a time frame, which is one thing I maybe should have done. But the thing that I regret is that, maybe not regret, but something that struck me is that most of the things that you mentioned, 80% came true, you know, waking up to a certain point, uh, having a certain lifestyle and, and what are the things that I'm working on? And I'm curious to know, like for you, what was the takeaway that like you should have thought bigger in that sense that that was for me yeah, at least like, I don't, I don't have any regrets. I think it was the great, a great exercise for me. I think I really did allow myself to fantasize I mean, I wasn't making a list that included curing cancer. Um, If I felt like I could, I would have, but I'm not a doctor and I'm not a scientist. That wasn't in my purview. I really, truly put things that I wanted with all my heart that seemed possible. You know, I didn't, I didn't write 
um, co-star in a movie with Julia Roberts. You know, they were real <laughs> tangible things that I really, really wanted in my life that were, were a stretch, you know, writing a book. I'd never written a book before, but that was something I really wanted in all my heart. So that's how I, I created it. Yeah. Yeah. And what's been different for you writing it the second time around? Like, how have you changed your approach from how you wrote it the first time? Um, I don't know that I changed it. It was really hard to, you know, given my success with this little exercise, you'd think yeah. I'm doing this every year, right? Just updating it and redoing it. I had a lot of resistance to, to sitting down and doing it. And so much so that I gave myself a deadline. It had, I had to finish it in 2017. And there I was new year's Eve, December 31st, 2017, spending new year's Eve writing my essay because I had decided that this was going to be something that I finished in 2017 and worked on it, you know, well into the wee hours. Um, So technically it really wasn't 2017 anymore, but 2018 turned out to be one of the most, most significant of my life. You know, I met Roxanne. um, I went on the National Geographic expedition. Um, The work that I did on that expedition was covered in the New York Times. Then 2019, I did my TED Talk. So it really did set the stage for this next chapter of work that I want to do. But I have to go back and read it again. I was... I was reading the essay, the Milton essay, like once a year or once every other year. And, and I think I didn't read it for the first time after writing it for about two years. And then when I read it, I was like, oh my God, this is, this is crazy. And so now I, I really should go back and reread it again because now it'll end up being close to three years. It's exciting. Yeah. And one of the things he mentions is be careful what you wish for, because a lot of the times I don't want people to think this is like wooey and, and this is like, you know, like the, the, the secret or anything like that. I mean, at the end of the day, this is just the North star yeah. that reminds you of where you want to go. And um, I don't know. Yeah. I, I almost feel like I wonder if this is an exercise for people that are trying to do these audacious things to not necessarily put themselves in the shoes of how they think and who they are today, but maybe someone that is five years down the road, because as I'm sure for you and and for a lot of people, there's like fears and dreams and capabilities and resources that maybe that you had five years ago that at this point in your life is not as intimidating, doesn't feel as exciting and feels like you're capable of more. And, um, I'm just wondering if that's uh, an important mindset for people to have when, when they're doing this exercise. Cause as, as Milton said, like a lot of these things can come true for a lot of people based on what they have in mind. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't really explain the mysterious elements of this. All I can say is that it profoundly changed my life mm. and, and leave it at that. I'm not a big woo-woo person. Yeah. I'm not a new age person. You know, the idea of being a vegan to me is like, I, I, I just don't even understand that. So <laughs> I'm not somebody that is thinking about that type of mystery on a regular basis. 
but this this really is something else. Yeah, yeah. Well, highly recommend for people doing it. Um, Debbie, you've been so gracious with your time. I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, leave you with two final questions. What's the biggest investment you've made in your life or career, or what's the best? Sorry. Uh, that's, that's made a big impact in either your success, your happiness, your fulfillment, purpose, anything that makes you who you are today as an individual? Uh, well, definitely the biggest and the most important would be therapy. You can't really understand your motivations if you've had any kind of trauma in your life on without any kind of help. And for anybody, and that's almost everybody at this point in our world today, if you've experienced any kind of trauma or harm, the biggest and most important thing you can do for yourself is better understand who you are through that. And, and that's with therapy. Right. Right. And it doesn't have to be this big trauma that they've gone through. It could be breakup. It could be. Yeah. And then final question, what are you most proud of? In my whole life? Could be anything. Could be what you've done today. Could be your life. It could be your career. Um, All right. I have two answers. I'm most proud. The number one thing in my life I'm most proud of is um, my relationship with my wife. Because I worked really hard to get to a place where I could have this kind of relationship. And I feel really lucky that we found each other. That's the thing I'm most proud of in my life. The thing I'm most proud of this last year is having finished my book, which was a slog, uh, which will be out in October. And it's called um, Why Design Matters. matters, Um, Almost forgot the name there. (laughs) Why Design Matters, conversations with the world's most creative people. And um, it is a bit of a monograph about the show. And, and I'm like really, really proud of it. Yeah, yeah. And just to name some of the people that you've, you've interviewed, of course, Mark, Milton Glaser, you've interviewed Seth Godin, Tim Ferriss, Ether Peril, uh, Brene Brown. I mean, amazing, amazing game changers, thought leaders, amazing people. So um, highly recommended. And Debbie, Thank you so much for making the time. Oh, thank you. What Being a wonderful so vulnerable. You're, you're a wonderful interviewer. I'm very, I'm highly critical of interviewers. <laughs> well, I was so nervous because you have the longest standing podcast. And uh, it was absolutely wonderful you know, to talk to you. Thank you. I really appreciate your time. So thank you so much. Once again, um, there will be no uh, copyright or anything sent to you after this. <laughs> no political statements, I promise. Seeing this on air, <laughs> just so you have it on hand. And uh, I had a really great time. Thank you, me too. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show. Hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable. And if it's something that a friend, a family member, or just someone that you care about could find a little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right. Ciao.